The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we'll go ahead and get started. Thanks for coming, everyone. I know a few of you are, at least, are reading along with us in this complimentary text by Guy Armstrong, Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators. So we're moving on to chapters 14, 15, 16 for the next several weeks. And uh, this teaching on emptiness is really designed, you know, as an instruction to help us move beyond the impression, the very strong and seductive impression that our thoughts about the world, our thoughts about our body, our thoughts about our life, our thoughts create an impression, right? The appearance, for example, of things being quite solid, right? Because our thoughts are basically telling us a story about what we normally would call external reality, like what's going on around me and my internal reality, what's happening inside of me, right? So all the time, thinking is happening, and that thinking, it's in a way, is painting a very seductive, a very compelling picture for me that tells me what this all is. And then over the years, of course, We never challenge that picture that our thoughts paint for ourselves, right? That's kind of how it is for us. Unless we take up this set of instructions, basically cultivating a very steady, clear, balanced, present moment awareness, where we're training the mind to open to experience. Now, we can't get rid of our thoughts, and we don't need to, but we're using thought more to invite this direct and immediate knowing of things in and of themselves, right? So sensation then instead of, like as we're feeling the body, instead of immediately or having a moment of feeling sensation like the weight sits bones or the buttocks against the cushion, and then immediately getting lost in the mind's description, oh yeah, I'm sitting here at common ground, right? And so then the attention is no longer with the actual experience of contact or pressure or weight. The attention is really attending to the thoughts the mind has about the body. It's hard. We have to train the mind to sustain its interest in something more simple and ordinary, like touching as an actual experience, like touching my thigh you know, what is that experience of touching without it being confused by the concept thigh or hand or, you know, this is weird, I'm touching. You know, whatever the mind might think, but just to stay with the more direct, immediate experiencing of warmth, for example, because I can feel warmth, not as a concept, but as an actual direct experiencing of that temperature. I can feel pressure without the experience of pressure without needing the word pressure, I can know pressure, right? And weight, hardness, softness. I mean, those are the direct things. So there's this other aspect of emptiness that really begins from 
shifting from our concepts, our ideas about things, like the body. That's just an example. It could be anything, right? From our idea to a direct experiencing, which means seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, touching is just touches, thoughts are just thoughts, smells and tastes are just that, just smelling and tasting. So it keeps going, though. But that's a powerful step. That's like for us as practitioners, it's a big part of our training is to go beyond the spell we're under, which is basically being lost in thought almost all the time. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, some of our moments of being lost in thought is pretty unskillful, right? Because our... It's not that being lost in thought is the most unskillful thing, but the thoughts we're lost in are very unskillful. So it's the combination of being lost in thought, not knowing we're thinking, and taking our thinking, the picture our thinking creates to be reality. But the particular reality our thoughts have painted is a very despicable reality, whatever it might be. You know, I hate you, or I hate myself, or whatever kind of reality our thoughts might have painted. So the first step is to realize there's this other world of things in and of themselves where we're seeing, but I'm not immediately lost in the perception I have from my visual experience of seeing all of you. I can stay at that level of shape and color, form, movement, right? That, That more immediate experience of seeing. You see the difference between seeing and the thoughts we have about the visual experience? There's two different things. The opinions I have based on what I'm seeing or the reactions I have based on what I'm seeing or the liking, right? There can be just the seeing. It's the same thing with the touching and the hearing. We don't have to immediately go to the level of concept and the proliferation of thought. But it's a training because that's where the mind tends to go because of habit. It's not a bad habit. We just want another habit, right? And then when the more we can stay at that level, in some um, teachings they call that the specific characteristics of experiencing, right? So like instead of seeing and then interpreting, oh, I'm seeing a bunch of people at Common Ground, and that thought, I'm seeing a bunch of people at Common Ground on Sunday morning, sort of capturing the attention, I can stay more at blue and brown and this shape and that shape, without the necessity of those words. It's more the direct experience of seeing, the visual experience, right? And then that sets up, like when we can sustain awareness at that more elemental level, not so mediated by our language, but the thoughts are still there. We don't need to get neurotic about the thoughts. It's really about what the attention is interested in. That's why curiosity or interest is so important. Are we interested in the picture our thoughts are creating? Or are we interested in a sense seeing through those thoughts, through the meaning thoughts are constructing, into a more elemental seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, touching, touches, just touches. And again, that's just setting up a deeper insight because once we're more at that elemental level, then the mind starts to generalize what seems to be true in this immediate, direct sense 
about seeing, about hearing, about touches, about thoughts, about emotions, about tastes and smells. Because more than the particular like, oh yeah, that touch is warm, or this touch is hard, or this touch is soft, or this touch is smooth, or this touch is rough, more important than the the particular or specific characteristic of a sight, a sound, a touch, a thought, is that it's changing. So whatever it is that the mind is knowing in that very direct and immediate way, the more uh, more significant, and in Buddhism we sometimes say universal aspect of that particular moment of experiencing, is that it's ephemeral. It doesn't matter what the particular is, like whether it's a moment of seeing, a moment of hearing, a moment of touching, a moment of thinking or knowing emotion. But whatever it is, when the mind is more stable, the present moment awareness is more continuous, we can start to notice that every phenomena that can be known is marked, characterized by change, by ephemeral, this ephemeral, insubstantial nature. And it's the not seeing this that is really the root. It, it's what makes our thoughts about things so seductive. Because when I think about things like I'm at common ground, it's Sunday morning and the sunshine, because we're at this time of the year, every spring and fall, right, it lines up just right. So the speaker gets the sun in the eyes, right? So I have all this meaning my perceptions and thoughts construct. And it's like that appearance, right, is spellbinding. It's seductive in the sense that my mind, the attention, stays at that level of the meaning thoughts construct. And then I miss this underlying, this more subtle underlying truth that there are all these specific characteristics, and more important than that, they're always coming and going. Nothing lasts very long. And that insight into change, into flow, that everything's a changing process, insubstantial, and therefore it doesn't provide anybody any ground. There's no ground. Nothing is ultimately worth grasping. You see, it really undermines the whole habit of taking things personally. We think it's actually the reality, like I'm here in a substantial way, but it's actually just a very clever habit that's been <coughs> uh, that has arisen because of certain causes and conditions. The primary cause, proximate cause, for the strong sense of self and a, and what comes with it is the sense of separation, being apart. Like I'm here, the world's out there. That means all of you, and somehow I'm existentially separate from the rest of you. Right? That's our lived experience. But what the Buddha found from just observing his own experience with a lot of honesty and a lot of sincerity is that's just a habit, a perceptual habit. That's all it is. Separation, being part in all of the existential angst and terror that comes with being a part is just a very deep, persistent perceptual habit. And it 
it depends on one thing in particular, not having enough stability of awareness, present moment awareness, to see that we're living in a changing process, that there's no solidity anywhere. You know, the, the ego, that, which is a construction, right? That's that habit, this sort of sense of being apart, me at a, as a core entity, unchanging core entity, right? That's the feeling. Like me, that me was there when I was 18. Now this me is here when I'm 60. That's me, right? That's the constructed idea that the mind constructs. And then we live with that perception, that understanding. We don't challenge it. And the way the Buddha suggests we challenge it is we become intimate with the way it is. And we see that we don't actually live in a world with things. We live in a changing process. So a sound isn't even a thing. You know, you hear a, the sound of a car or you feel the touch of warmth with your hand on your thigh or something or you see a visual experience or you think and know you're thinking a thought. Whatever internal, external experience you have, if you train your mind to be honest, aware, not projecting, but just experiencing in a more simple, intimate way, you'll see that it doesn't, that that experience isn't really a thing. It's part of a continually changing process of seeing and hearing and touching and thinking and emoting and tasting and smelling. That there's really no ground. What seems to create the, the appearance of ground is this habit of thinking, right? When I say I'm at calm ground and it's Sunday morning and the sunshine is coming into my eyes, that paints a picture and that picture has a sense of static truth to it. You know, when I say I'm Mark Nunberg and I've been the guiding teacher of calm ground for 25 years, you know, that has sort of a static reality to it. But there's never been anything static about that experience. It's always been a flow. And it never is like a thing because it's always becoming the next moment, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Now, this isn't philosophy. This is actually our experience. But we have to train the mind to be interested on this more subtle, ongoing level. And to do that, we have to drop the enchantment we have with our, the meaning our thoughts create We don't have to be against the meaning our thoughts create about who I am, who you are, what's happening here. We're just sort of training the mind not to pay attention to the meaning thoughts construct temporarily, and we get interested instead in the specific characteristics of breathing in, breathing out, or sitting, or hearing. It's just ordinary experience, but not the meaning our thoughts is giving to ordinary experience, But the thread, the changing thread of hearing or the changing thread of body as sensation or the changing thread of thought, right? Because we can do this with thought. It's just a little bit more seductive initially as a beginner to do it with the changing nature of thought as opposed to the changing nature of sensation or hearing. So generally we use sensation and hearing as a more useful training ground for learning to see the insubstantial changing nature of everything, that nothing is outside of that changing nature. 
we never find anything that isn't changing, except, and this will sound a little theoretical, the non-attachment to everything that's changing can have a sense of constancy, right? Liberation, the not clinging, the full wholehearted participation, showing up, being aware, that can have a sense of trustworthiness. I'll say that instead of constancy, right? To be accepting of change can have a kind of permanence, right? Coming into alignment with the changing nature. You know, we have all kinds of words we associate with this, like vulnerability, and uncertainty, and things being ungovernable. And and learning how to show up in life and participate and to be fearless and to do what's good, to take care of everybody in this world, given that it's ungovernable and uncertain and vulnerable and changing. It's easy to sort of generate a lot of energy to fix something if we imagine I can actually get it fixed and then it will be done. It's like people can pour a lot of energy in their relationship if they're deluded and think, I'll put all this energy into this relationship and then it will be perfect and then I'll be safe. I'm going to put all this energy into my body, then I'm going to get healthy and then I'll be safe. And the same thing with activism. I'm going to put all this energy into solving this place of social injustice and then it will be perfect and then it will be safe. And it's a whole nother level of participation and engagement to engage knowing that we, there's no end to the engagement. Like, so then there has to be some joy. There has to be some enlivening joy in the engagement in life, in racism, in all these places of injustice in our world, all of our sticky places, like just taking care of our body and our relationships and our livelihood and all these places that, that never ends. When does it end? We can only imagine it ends by getting ourselves in a bubble. That's somebody else's problem, you know, because I'm in this place, you know, and those people that are suffering, that's their karma their responsibility, that somehow it's outside of my realm of responsibility. And we do this all the time, but it never sits right when we pay attention in our hearts. Full exposure feels right. But we can't have full exposure unless we make peace with that. We have to integrate that. And this is what we do. So a lot of times people think sitting meditation practice is like an escape. No, no. It's like learning how to be in the world, in the messiness of the world, because that changing, insubstantial, vulnerable truth is here, just in being aware of the body, the breath, and hearing. It's just a relatively safe place to practice being that exposed to change, to uncertainty, to vulnerability. And that's really what these next three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, for those who are reading the book, and we'll be spending a few weeks on these chapters where we're trying to see the body as an insubstantial thing, to notice thoughts 
as insubstantial. Right? So the Buddha has this famous discourse called Lump of Foam. It's usually the title is translated as. And he refers to the five physical senses, like the meaning, the tendency to create something substantial out of touch, out of hearing, out of seeing, out of smelling and tasting. But actually it's like a lump of foam. You know, like alongside of a river or a lake, you see that sort of just that froth. And it looks like it's something, but it's not much of anything. And then he says that feeling, the, the pleasantness of an experience, the unpleasantness of an experience is like a bubble. It's so ephemeral. You know, it's there and it doesn't last long. Think about how many really unpleasant emotional, physical experiences we've had in our life. Where are they now? Or all the really pleasant experiences, you know, when you finally get the food you want or some sex, sexual experience or some something satisfying, you know, but how long does that satisfaction of the pleasantness last? Not very long. And perception he likens to... Uh, um, what is it now? I'll go on. I, I'm forgetting it, but we'll come back. Oh, a mirage. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because it's like, you know, when I see somebody I recognize well, like Corey or Patrice or Steve, you know, it's like very quickly just that visual form gets replaced with my idea of who that person is. But it's actually just seen. We do this a lot with the people we know well. Like try to be home with like a partner or somebody you live with or even your pet without being confused by all of the cumulative history you have with that being, but just in the immediacy, the unknown immediacy of being together. It's hard not to be confused by the mirage. And that's what perception is. It's like I replace the direct interaction experiencing with the projection of who I think the person is. And mostly we're interacting with our projection. And we're constantly massaging like who, what the person is saying and their body language into our projection. It's like, no, no. I, I'm much more, I feel much more safe with my projection of you than I do with the actuality of you. You know, because it's, it has the appearance of constancy. But the person themselves, it's like a force of nature. They're not a thing. They're a changing process. And that's disconcerting. right? Because we want solid ground and it's much easier to imagine their solid ground if my partner or my cat or my friend or my whatever is this static thing that I'm imagining them to be instead of something that is inherently unknowable, ungraspable, always changing, evolving. I remember my mom's great lament growing up. She was pretty transparent, (laughs) which I appreciate. My dad's family, you know, it's sort of like they were really together, but emotionally, like, because you can't be together and be emotional, right? It's like you got to make a choice at some point. (laughs) And my mom was very emotional and not afraid, just, you know, it just being out there. And so her great lament was, you know, just, 
we were just little kids. You'd say, you know, your father is not the person I married. <laughs> this is not the person I married. This is not what I signed up for. And I'm sure it was true in, in a lot of ways. But it, it wasn't his fault. Nothing is anybody's fault in that sense, right? Because we're these dynamic processes. That's what we are. And the best way you know, to survive a long-term relationship is to wholeheartedly participate in these two changing processes so that the dance of that change somehow you know, has a sympathetic resonance that creates a nice sound, you know, a nice dance as those two changing processes unfold as opposed to having some discordant, unpleasant vibration together. So they'd end up not belonging together and then having to go through that difficult process of realizing that we don't belong together anymore. You know, we've grown apart or we, you know, we're just not, we don't sound good together. And so we got to find another place to be. So we have the lump of foam for the five physical senses. We have the, um, the bubble for the feeling tone, the pleasant and unpleasant. So we're not so spellbound by pleasant and unpleasant feeling because they don't really last very long. So why be afraid of the dentist? It may be really unpleasant, but it doesn't last long. Or why be seduced by ice cream? It doesn't last very long. I'm getting closer. You know, <laughs> I just need to do more direct research. <laughs> Into the impermanent nature of that smooth, cool, pleasant sweetness. <laughs> but I'm getting more convinced that as nice as it is, it doesn't really last very long. And it's such an interesting place because it's not always at the end of the bowl where it's no longer pleasant. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we see that it's actually, you know, if your bowl is as big as mine, <laughs> it's more in the middle where it's, and the idea is that it's pleasant, but the direct experience isn't pleasant anymore. That bubble has popped. And the idea keeps coming in, no, no, ice cream, good. Ice cream, good. Ice cream, good. But if we train ourselves like we are, if you're showing up here, we're training ourselves to trust the direct experiencing of touch and taste and feeling tone and perception and The next category is mental formations, all these mental constructions and intention and volition. This is kind of a catch-all quality of the mind. So the mind is divided in four ways. We have the feeling tone, that I like it or that I don't like it or that I'm neutral about it. The perception, like recognizing it, labeling, oh yeah, Corey, common ground, cushion, bell, that's perception, right? And then there's this catch-all category, mental formations, mental constructions, right? So this is like all the stuff that comes rushing in, all those latent tendencies, meaning I bring, and then volition, what I'm going to do about the meaning I brought to this moment of experience. The Buddha likens this, now this a lot of us won't know about, but if you've been in the tropics and you've seen banana trees or plankton trees, they can look pretty substantial. I mean, some of them are even this wide. But interesting, if you're there long enough, 
and the bananas ripen and they get picked and that tree falls apart because it grows every year, I believe. And if you were to peel it off, it's like you keep peeling and there's no heartwood in a banana tree. There's no like solid wood in the middle of a banana tree. You just keep peeling and then all of a sudden there's nothing there. And so mental formations, the meaning I'm giving myself to what's happening, who I am, who you are, it can feel, like, especially like when we're angry or we're really sure, sure that if I get this, then I'll be happy. That feels quite substantial. But when we deconstruct the concept, the meaning the mind is creating about anything, there's really nothing there. You know how it is like we're totally lost in some obsessive pattern and it's like seems really it's like our whole universe and then all of a sudden something bumps us out of the outside of it. Like maybe when we were sitting you weren't actually meditating you were like lost in thought and then somebody's cell phone went off twice, right? (laughs) But there was no irritation. (laughs) But there was just enough of a kind of popped that banana tree trunk that's felt so substantial, whatever the mind was lost in. And all of a sudden, the awareness is outside of it. And you know, like in a dream, you want to get back inside of it, don't you? But it's hard to get back inside of the delusion once you realized it was just something, some delusion that the mind, like maybe you were renovating your home or maybe you were planning a vacation or planning your revenge or (laughs) whatever you were doing, it felt like a whole reality until it got popped because the mind stepped outside and saw that it was much more insubstantial than what the mind was imagining it was. And then the last thing, consciousness, and we'll talk about this in the weeks ahead, is likened as a magician's trick, that something is being known. I was telling some friends uh, the other night, gathering with some friends, and we were talking about consciousness. I had, in the New York Review of Books, New York, yeah, New York Review of Books is, Interesting, great uh, um, uh, magazine or journal. It's, it has great articles. It's m- mostly about book reviews, but the person doing the review generally covers this whole area that the book relates to, and um, some articles are fantastic. And one was on consciousness, and, it w- and then there were some letters in response to this review about a book on consciousness. And um, it was just really interesting because we assume consciousness refers back. Th- this is the most subject- su- uh, um, seductive thing about reinforcing the sense of there's somebody back there, permanently me back there, because who's knowing this? And that's why the Buddha uses this image of a magician's trick. Just like when a really good magician does something, it really seems real. So, because there's knowing, it really seems like somebody's knowing. Clearly, knowing is happening, right? But that's all we know, that knowing is happening. We don't know that there's a knowing, I, I'm sorry, that there's a knower doing the knowing. But we presume very strongly that there's a knower doing the knowing. But in terms of our Actual, if we trust our experience, if we train the mind to trust experience, especially about this most subtle part of our experience, experiencing, which we call consciousness or awareness, we have to trust our experience 
more than the ideas we have about our experience. The practice the Buddha lays out for us is all about trusting the way it is. Not what someone tells you it is. You have to trust your own experience. And it's a process because we're not in the habit of trusting our experience. This is why we're so susceptible to cults, to nationalism, and all this kind of tribalism stuff. Because we're used to believing the meaning either we create or other people have created and told us it's true. And it's just so much more convenient to glob on to those truths that we're told to believe in than it is to train the mind to trust our own experiencing and to trust it no matter where it leads. That's the kicker. And it's a whole change of allegiance, being in allegiance to whoever's charismatic or if we're a rebel, then our own voice. right? But it's really not that different if we're believing our ideas or somebody else's ideas. It only matters if we transform our force our ideas, concepts, to line up with our direct experiencing. That's what's important. Because Buddhism, it's just a bunch of ideas too. But real, the, you know, the teachings of this guy that we call the Buddha, and it's just the title, it means somebody who's awake, somebody who's woken up, woke up to the way it is, right? That's what Buddha means. So his ideas, if they're any, of any value to us, or ideas that inspire us to begin to trust our own experiencing, and that so that and inspire us enough that we're willing to retrain the mind to be aware, to go from lost in thought about things to experiencing the specific characteristics, to begin to notice the changing, ephemeral, insubstantial, unsatisfying nature, impersonal nature, to realize the full integration of that insight of change is there is nothing, there is no ground worth grasping. The appropriate way to be is to let go, to engage without attachment, to show up, to be a human being without attachment, to be in the relative world of relationship and power and injustice without fear, without attachment, right? So not about like, get me the hell out of here. It's so, why bother? Because it's so ephemeral. No, no, that's called spiritual bypass. Because only an ego, only somebody who's apart and seeing how ephemeral everything is would say, I'm out of here. That's delusion. That's even more deluded. Like to see how ephemeral it is and then to think, I don't want to be in the world. It's so ephemeral. Because it's like, wait a minute, everything out there is ephemeral. Well, maybe this is also ephemeral, right? We forgot to do the last part of the work. Because this is like where emptiness goes really weird, where we're sort of telling our friends, oh, you're just empty. Don't, don't be so upset about it. You know, sure, there's patriarchy, but it's empty. Yeah, racial injustice is true, but it's just stuff happening. You know, this is like the real shadow, not just in Buddhism, but in spirituality generally, that somehow God's going to take care of it or it's God's business or nature's business. The real fruit of spiritual life is we're not afraid to engage on this mundane level. Wait, that's not fair. 
we should do something about that. Even though it's really sticky and difficult to unpack, like how to do something about that. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to show up? How are we going to take responsibility? It's only people who are fearless and aren't neurotically dependent on getting safety, who have integrated the lack of safety, the exposure that comes with being a human being, they're the people who are willing to show up and do what needs to be done in the world. So I'll leave it here. We have time for a few comments from folks here today, your own wisdom around these issues that I brought up or questions you might have. What comes to mind? Yeah, please. I had a, my name is Jess. I had a question about um, just the idea of change and like the scale of change. When you're talking about the sunlight coming through the windows, do you mean that in like seven minutes it's not going to be on your face anymore? Or is it a shorter, like moment to moment it's changing? Yeah. Likewise, do you mean like you see blue and um, gray colors and that tomorrow they might be wearing something else? Or is it like your perception of the blue and gray even changes? Yeah. I mean, that it's fine to start on that bigger level. Like we came to the 1030 program and in five minutes it's going to cease. It just won't exist anymore. Whatever this is, it's like that banana tree trunk, right? Because it's pretty substantial what's happening here together today. It's kind of a big thing. But it's, it's not, there's like what is this? Like we don't find the thingness here, even though it may have an impact on us or we connect with people in a meaningful way. But we can't really find that essence because it affects how things unfold. But the thing of being here at Common Ground at ten, between 10.30 and 11.45 on Sunday morning isn't a thing. It's just a changing process. So... That it's a more subtle than that it was green, t- you know, your T-shirt's green today, but tomorrow might be blue. It's like even the greenness is new in every moment. The idea of greenness is static, but the experience of seeing green is different in every moment. It's only the idea that makes things appear to be constant. The idea of I'm at common ground, or the kids are here now, you know, and it creates a, the idea has a sense, an appearance of static solidity. But seeing isn't solid or static. Hearing, thinking, feeling, those things flow, 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 flow. One moment conditioning the next. There's no beginning or end to that changing process. And that really characterizes our life. But we're more dependent, more used to being dependent on the meaning thoughts give to things. And we're less used to being in that stream. That's why the first deep insight, substantial insight, is called entering the stream, right, or stream entry in Buddhist, sort of traditional Buddhist terms. It's sort of realizing the process nature, the changing nature, no longer thinking of things as things, solid and therefore graspable. Thanks for your comment. Have a good week, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.